Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Crossover episode 2, part 1, The Rise of the Borgias with Assassinations Podcast. The episode you're about to listen to is a crossover, a collaboration between a history of Italy and Assassinations podcast. It was really great when Neil Cooper of the podcast got in touch with me. It's a bit like one of your favourite singers calling you for a duet, but I can't sing, so there you are. In the first part, I'm going to tell you about the rise of the Borgia family, and Neil is going to concentrate on one of the more notorious members, Cesare Borgia. I hope you enjoy the episode. It seemed that if you were a European monarch in the 15th century and you got bored, one of the possible pastimes you could have was to invade the Kingdom of Naples. That is exactly what Alfonso, King of Aragon, did in 1442, taking it from the Angevins. Among the men the king brought with him was the trusted bishop of Valencia, Don Alfonso Iborja, who served him very well in Italy and was also well liked by the Pope, Eugene IV, who made him a cardinal. His name, however, Borja, was a bit hard on the Italian ear, so it was changed to a name that would resound through the centuries and go from a real historical family to the stuff of legend. The association would often be with corruption, debauchery, intrigue and murder. The name in question was Borgia. In the year 1455, when another Pope, Nicholas V, died, we have a shining example of someone being in the right place at the right time. As was often the case, the opposing factions of cardinals were divided, down national lines with the Italians, French and Spanish, as well as others, and even along family lines among the national factions, with the Italians, for example, split between the prominent families of the Colonna and the Orsini. This often meant that a stalemate would be reached for the election of a new pope, and no one candidate would be able to reach the two-thirds majority required for election. In these cases, a transition pope was often chosen, as old and feeble as possible, so that the factions could have some time to prepare for the next election, but not too much time. So, at 77 years of age, Cardinal Alfonso Borgia was the perfect candidate for a transition pope. Indeed, his papacy only lasted three years. However, he was quite active in that time, and, most importantly to our story, he was able to sort out the children of his sister, Isabella. One nephew in particular, Rodrigo, was quickly made a cardinal, although he didn't really have either the age or the requisites for it. In the end, things went over smoothly, even when nephew Borja was made vice-chancellor. It was not at all rare for a bit of nepotism in the church, and plus, Rodrigo was well-liked. He was attractive, although not really handsome, but he was quickly able to win people over 
to charm them, both men and, more notoriously, women. When his uncle did die in 1158, Rodrigo Borgia was part of the conclave that convened to elect the next pope. Among the foremost candidates was a man from Siena, an heir Silvio Piccolomini. However, in early voting, a stalemate was once again reached. This is where Rodrigo Borgia stepped up to grasp one of those occasions, one of those make-it-or-break-it moments. In the silence that followed the count of the vote that determined the stalemate, he was the first to stand up and declare his open support for Piccolomini. Others followed his example, and thus Pius II was elected. Cardinal Borgia was rewarded by keeping his position as Vice-Chancellor, working in close collaboration with the Pope. Indeed, Cardinal Borgia kept his position for five papacies for a total of 37 years. In this time, Rodrigo Borgia went from being well-off to becoming stinking rich. One of the most wealthy and influential men in Rome, in Italy, and perhaps in Europe, since he became close to their most Catholic majesties, Fernando of Aragon and Isabella of Castile. Although Her Majesty never completely trusted the Borgias, something that would be important in time. Borgia also had a little bit of time for some naughtiness. Although he lived a relatively simple life, he did love to show off spending money on big important events and he didn't mind a little fun on the side. Indeed, still during the papacy of Pius II, he was scolded after a return from a diplomatic mission in Siena for having participated in an orgy there with a group of wives of some important noblemen. He didn't stop at orgies either. In this period, Cardinal Borgia had his first three children, the less famous ones, Pedro, Isabella and Gerolima. Although they didn't reach the levels of fame of their half-brothers and sisters later, Pedro, for example, participated in the taking of Granada from the Muslims, completing the Spanish unification, which was a source of pride for his father Rodrigo. The cardinal's household grew. You could see at least 200 of his men dressed in the family yellow and red, plus slaves and that's not even counting the employees as a cardinal. It was one of these clerical employees, Domenico D'Arignano, who performed a rather unusual service in the autumn of 1474, marrying one Vanozza Cattane. The service was unusual because the groom was not actually going to be the husband. D'Arignano was a stand-in so that Cardinal Borgia could live happily with his lover, Vannozza, close by. One year later, the first son of Vannozza Catane and Rodrigo Borgia was born. His name was Cesare. Sooner than expected, Darignano died, and a miracle must have happened because the widow managed to have two more children, either from the Holy Spirit or from Rodrigo Borgia. The second child was Giovanni, and the third, 
a beautiful blonde girl was named Lucrezia. Later, Vannozza would have two more husbands, Giorgio de Croce and Carlo Canale, and one more son, Goffredo. We are uncertain if the fourth was actually a Borgia, as the cardinal himself was often heard to lament. Vannozza's time in the limelight ended in 1483. In that year, her children were taken away from her and sent to live with a cousin of the Borgias, Adriana de Mila. It was her son, an Orsini, imaginatively named Orsino Orsini, who helped out the good cardinal by marrying a certain Giulia Farnese. Once again, however, Orsino was the groom, but not the intended husband. Giulia was the new lover of Rodrigo Borgia. She was 16 years old at the time. Incidentally, the name Orsini means little bears, so this guy's name was Little Bear, Little Bears. Anyway. In 1492, while one Italian sailed the ocean blue on behalf of the Spanish, a Spaniard became the ruler of part of the Italians and all of Western Christendom. Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia became Pope Alexander VI. The morning of his election, four mules, heavily loaded with silver and gold, headed up from the palace of the Borgia and made their way to the palace of Ascanio Sforza, a cardinal and contender for the papacy, who surprisingly stepped aside and threw his support behind Borgia. In short, this is an example of simony, the buying and selling of church offices, which was considered illegal. Borgia didn't even bother to deny it, and that fact went a further step towards creating the legend of the Borgias. Alexander VI wasted no time with shows of false modesty. He quickly donned the largest of the three papal robes which were on hand, not knowing what size pope would be chosen beforehand and set to work. The first order of business was to get Rome under control after the usual lawlessness that followed the death of a pope. Alexander did this by having any murderers hung over the ruins of their own destroyed houses. He was not a gratuitously cruel man, however. He was actually patient and forgiving, for example, refusing to censor many of the pamphlets that were written against him. His staff loved him and even saved his life once in the summer of 1500 when the roof over the room where he was was hit by lightning and the ceiling fell on him. When his father became Pope, Cesare Borgia was not yet 18 and studying in Pisa to enter into a religious career. His father now gave that career quite a considerable acceleration. Regulating his position by having him declared the legitimate son of Darignano with the Borgia surname just being a sign of affection, and hey presto, we had a new Cardinal Borgia. It seems that Alexander had two very clear roles for his sons. Cesare would become an important member of the church and build up the family fortune, while his brother, Giovanni, would be the founder of a great Borgia dynasty. The only problem with this plan was that Cesare didn't like it at all. However, he kept quiet. 
This was one of the characteristics of Cesare Borgia that helped create the family legend. It was always impossible, almost to the very end, to understand what he was thinking. He was a master of hiding his feelings. Meanwhile, there were another two bargaining chips to play, Lucrezia and Goffredo. The latter went in the direction of dynastic ties with Naples. Goffredo would marry the, the illegitimate daughter of Alfonso of Aragon, king of Naples, Sancha, while Lucrezia would marry Giovanni Sforza, the Duke of Pesaro, who was tied to the powerful Sforza family of Milan. In the deal, Alexander ignored the fact that Lucrezia was already promised to a Spanish noble, who actually showed up in Rome, but was soon put in his place by the Pope. The wedding was a huge, sumptuous affair. The mother of the bride, Vannozza, was not invited. The Pope refused to allow the marriage to be consummated, citing the young age of the bride, who was only 14. The more suspicious minds thought this was to have a bit more time to see if the marriage alliance had been the right diplomatic move. The bride was taken to the altar by her brother Giovanni, who then, during the celebration, managed to show all of his arrogance and cruelty by insulting people randomly at the wedding. When he commented loudly that one man looked like a pig, he was in turn called the bastard son of a priest. Giovanni, instead of doing justice for himself, perhaps as his brother Cesare would have done, went crying to his father. The guest was promptly arrested and executed, defying the sacred laws of hospitality. The only things that the two elder Borgia brothers, Cesare and Giovanni, had in common were their good looks, their most likely both being lovers of their younger brother, Cofredo's wife, Sancha, and the deep hatred they felt. For each other. Now, on an international level, things were heating up. We don't have time to go into the details and background here. We'll do that in our regular episodes. But the main thing was that King Charles VIII of France was now preparing an invasion of Italy to take the thrones of Milan and Naples. When the French army advanced on Rome, it looked like the reign of Alexander would end sooner than expected, but he was able to completely outsmart the young king, sending him away with empty promises of supporting his claim to the throne, but no real commitment. Cesare Borgia was sent with the army as a hostage, but disappeared only a few days later. When his baggage, holding the riches that he brought with him, was opened, it was found to be empty. In the end, after a temporary success, the result of the French invasion was a failure. Now it was time for the Borgias to seek revenge on the families who had sided with the French. The first were actually ex-allies of theirs, the Orsini. Giovanni Borgia was sent in 1496 to besiege their fortress, but the expedition met with disaster. The Borgias once again found themselves on the brink of extinction, harried by the Orsini and the remaining pockets of French troops. Alexander had to ask the Spanish for help, who sent up from Naples the commander Gonzalo de Cordoba, who succeeded in saving the family. For his help, Gonzalo got a pat on the back and a thank you, 
Giovanni Borgia, who had failed spectacularly in his first and only military engagement, was made Duke of Benevento. De Cordoba was not happy. Even less happy was Cesare Borgia, who was sent to negotiate over the duchy for his hated brother. It was a bit too much. Cesare's big problem, however, would soon be solved. Giovanni Borgia was last seen alive on the night of the 14th of June, 1497. Two days later, his body was found full of savage stab wounds. The murder of Giovanni Borgia is one of the great mysteries surrounding the Borgia family. When it comes to mysteries, Neil Cooper is the right man for the job. So now we pass the torch to Assassinations Podcast. For the moment, we'll leave a deeply grieving Borgia family with Pope Alexander even thinking of repenting and reforming the church and Lucrezia devastated. Cesare, on the other hand, was finally free to take the place of his brother as the creator of a dynasty. The problem was that to create a power base of wealth and land from almost nothing in a crowded place like Italy, you had to make a lot of people unhappy. There was no middle ground. It would either be power and glory or disaster. Like the inscription on his sword, for Cesare Borgia it would be Caesar or nothing. Therefore, if you are a prince in possession of a newly acquired state and deem it necessary to guard against your enemies, to gain allies, to win either by force or fraud, to be loved and feared by your subjects, to be respected and obeyed by your troops, to annihilate those who can or must attack you, to reform and modernize old institutions, to be severe yet cordial, magnanimous and liberal, to abolish a disloyal militia and create a new one, to preserve the friendship of kings and princes in such a way that they will either favor you graciously or oppose you cautiously, then for such purposes you will not find fresher examples to follow than the actions of this man. Here we have the great Renaissance political philosopher Niccolò Machiavelli giving us an admiring description of Cesare Borgia. This is taken from his famous treatise on power, The Prince, which Machiavelli wrote as a sort of guidebook for new and aspiring rulers. The son of Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia, Cesare, born in 1474, was supposed to have had a career in the church. He was sent to study law as a youngster before being made a bishop at the tender age of 15 and an archbishop at just 17. Cesare was then given several other church offices and the rich pickings that came with them before being made a cardinal at the age of 18 immediately after his father was elevated to the papacy as Alexander VI. I think that's called being on the fast track. While Cesare's job was to bolster the family's position within the church, Pope Alexander pinned the temporal plans of the Borgia dynasty upon his son Giovanni. 
We heard in the previous segment, brilliantly provided by a History of Italy podcast, that this arrangement did not suit the tastes of our boy Cesare, who really didn't want to be a priest, even if he was a cardinal. He wanted to be a soldier, but so long as Giovanni lived, it fell to Cesare to do his duty to the family in the church. So, wasn't it a stroke of good luck when, in 1497, poor Giovanni died? under mysterious circumstances. On the night of June 14th, he attended a party at his mother's house in Rome. Also present were his siblings, Cesare, Lucrezia and Gioffredo. At some point in the evening, Giovanni left the party, riding off into the night. Apparently, he was followed by a man wearing a mask. But let's put a pin in that detail which we will come back to later. The next morning, Giovanni's horse came back without its rider. A search ensued, and before long, his body was recovered from the Tiber River, throat slit, with nine stab wounds to the chest. Giovanni's expensive clothing and a purse full of gold coins were left untouched. Would you be surprised if I told you that several contemporaries suggested that maybe Cesare might have had a hand in this? Though suspicion did also fall upon the other brother, Gioffredo, as naughty Giovanni might have been having an affair with his brother's wife. The Pope was distraught. He launched an investigation into the murder, only to call it off just one week later, before a suspect had been identified. Perhaps Alexander found out something that he really did not want to know. Cesare then resigned his position as cardinal and was promptly made a duke. I think that one's called a lateral transfer these days. This was the opportunity that Cesare had been waiting for. The Italian wars were raging and he could now fight for the glory of his family name. As we heard in the first part of today's episode, France was also involved in these wars, and its king sent an army into Italy in 1499. At this time, Pope Alexander was allied with France, so he ordered his son to join the French forces in their conflict with the powerful Sforza family in Milan. The French were victorious, and the army marched into the city, with Cesare given a place of honour. Cesare then won several victories at the head of the papal army before returning to Rome, where his father threw him a good old-fashioned Roman triumph to celebrate. Alexander decided to press home the advantage of his successful alliance with the French by creating a Borgia state in northern Italy. This involved getting rid of a layer of petty local tyrants in the region, so-called vicars, who were nominally under papal authority, but who pretty much did as they pleased. And it pleased them to rip off the common people, who might very well have welcomed Cesare and his army. As we witnessed during our sojourn in ancient Rome, ambitious rulers are often short of cash. So, in furtherance of his plans to expand and consolidate his family's territory, Alexander created twelve new openings in the College of Cardinals. 
All the new cardinals had to throw a sizable wedge into the kitty, which helped the Pope to fund Cesare's military adventures, in particular to hire mercenaries. One of the places that Cesare had to quell was a small city called Faenza. Its ruler was a young man named Astori Manfredi. In 1501, Cesare took over the city and sent the 16-year-old Astori into exile in Rome. There he was supposed to be welcomed and taken care of, but things did not work out so well. Within a year, the unfortunate Astori was murdered, his body also being recovered from the Tiber. Was it Cesare who ordered the hit? Perhaps. It was alleged that the killer was a man named Micheletto Corella, who was Cesare's longtime friend, confidant, and hatchet man. Another person who was allegedly murdered by Corella was Alfonso of Aragon, a Neapolitan prince who was married to Lucrezia Borgia. Pope Alexander had hoped that the marriage of his daughter to Alfonso would create an alliance between his house and the royal family of Aragon. Though this was an arranged dynastic union, it seemed that Alfonso and Lucrezia were actually very fond of each other. Historical accounts indicate that they were both very good-looking, which must have been a nice bonus. And they seemed to have lived quite happily together in Rome. However, Pope Alexander's plans changed, and he decided to ditch his alliance with the Aragonese. Seeing the writing on the wall, Alfonso fled Rome, leaving Lucrezia, then six months pregnant, behind. He wrote several times to his wife, urging her to leave Rome to live with him. Cesare got wind of these letters and ordered his sister to write back, begging Alfonso to return. He did so, and at first it seemed that everything was fine and dandy. No doubt he was happy to be with his beloved as she gave birth to their child, a son. Of course, all was not well in Rome. A few months later, Alfonso was attacked in front of St. Peter's Basilica, stabbed several times by unidentified assailants. He was brought inside, where Lucrezia and her staff took care of him day and night. A few weeks later, as he was convalescing, Lucrezia is said to have been lured away from her husband's bedside, perhaps by Cesare himself. At this moment, Micheletto Corella is alleged to have entered the bedroom and strangled the unfortunate Alfonso in his bed. As conspiracies unfolded in Rome, Cesare also enjoyed a number of military successes elsewhere in Italy. He was well respected, even by his enemies, as a battlefield tactician who could command the loyalty of his men. Moreover, he was aided in no small part by a certain Leonardo da Vinci, who was employed as his military architect and engineer. Like many of his contemporaries, Cesare was not just a cutthroat. He was also a Renaissance prince, someone who was a patron of the arts. Perhaps this relationship between Cesare and Leonardo, a man who singularly combined artistic and technical genius, is expressive of the symbiotic and seemingly contradictory relationship between high art and grim warfare in Italy at this time.
Things took a slight turn for the worse when Cesare had a falling out with some of his mercenary commanders, a dispute that was connected to his rivalries with other powerful forces in Italy who feared that Cesare's rise could only come at their expense. Cunningly, he proposed to resolve this dispute by false diplomacy. He called for a meeting with his foes, and then imprisoned them and had them killed. Not very subtle, but it gets the job done. Machiavelli records that Cesare appointed a man named Ramiro de Lorca, whom he describes as swift and cruel, to govern some of the lands that had been conquered. But de Lorca ended up being a potential rival, so Cesare had him arrested and executed on some pretense. De Lorca's body was left in the street, a bloody knife by its side, as a macabre gift to the common people who hated him, and a warning to Cesare's foes. Machiavelli approvingly notes that, quote, The barbarity of this spectacle caused the people to be at once satisfied and dismayed. He was so very good at being bad, it seems. But Cesare could really only thrive so long as his father remained on the papal throne. In 1504, Cesare was shipped out to Spain to be kept as a prisoner of Ferdinand II of Aragon, whom he'd been at odds with during the Italian wars. Cesare managed to escape from captivity, going on to become a successful military commander in the service of the King of Navarre. Killed during a siege, his fine clothes were stripped from his body by enemy soldiers, leaving Cesare naked except for the leather mask that he sometimes needed to wear in order to cover up an intermittent disfigurement perhaps a flare-up of ulceration caused by syphilis. A masked man, eh? Cesare left behind one legitimate daughter, and at least eleven illegitimate children. Summing up his thoughts on Cesare Borgia and his bloody efforts, Niccolò Machiavelli writes, When all the actions of the Duke are recalled, I do not know how to blame him. But rather it appears to be, as I have said, that I ought to offer him for imitation to all those who, by the fortune or the arms of others, are raised to government. Because he, having a lofty spirit and far-reaching aims, could not have regulated his conduct otherwise, and only the shortness of the life of Alexander and his own sickness frustrated his designs. Thank you very much for listening to this crossover episode with Assassinations Podcast on the Borgias. And stay tuned next week for part two. At this point in my regular episodes, I usually thank my Patreon donors. But if they don't mind, I'll take one episode off to thank my PayPal donors, who usually only get a thank you when they actually donate, which isn't really fair. So, thank you very, very much to Ron D, to Brenda W., Emily D, John K, William K, Ignazio P, Marco M, and Teresa C. Thank you, thank you very much. You all help make podcasting a lot easier. If you want to get in touch, remember you can do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com 
At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and on Facebook, and there you can find maps and timelines and everything you need to navigate our country's complicated history. Until next time, thanks again very much for listening, and arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.